0: Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. So, I'd like to start this episode by introducing you to our associate producer, Jen Richler. Hi, Jen. Hello, Jeremy. When we're putting the show together, Jen and I spent a lot of time sharing our thoughts about the episode, and so we thought it would be cool to share some of those thoughts with you. So going forward, at the beginning of each episode, that's exactly what we're going to do. Now, as you may be able to tell because of the audio, Jen and I are not actually in the same room. Due to COVID-19, we're recording remotely, and we are sequestered in our own lockdown homes. Jen, how are you holding up in your lockdown?
1: Well, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, a a lot of walking the dog, uh, a lot of loading and unloading the dishwasher. I think too exciting.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty wild that this year for Passover, we're dealing with essentially a real life plague, right? I mean, you could, you could create a new Haggadah that includes COVID-19 as the 11th plague. You could. To your mind, how does COVID-19 stack up against the plagues of the exodus.
1: I mean, you know, it's pretty bad, right? But I suppose you could say the same about some of the other plagues. You know, perhaps frogs wasn't the biggest deal, but slaying of the firstborn is pretty, pretty tough.
0: If we did a Haggadah with COVID-19 in it, it would just be a description of this virus. And then the Egyptians just kind of sequestered at home all bored. But the Israelites are allowed to just go about their normal lives and have fun. Yeah right? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, okay. So (laughs) now, for those who are not familiar with the Haggadah, our listeners that just don't know that term, it's the book used as a guide to the Passover Seder and to telling the story of the Jews' exodus from Egypt. And the Haggadah is also the focus of this episode. And one thing that's remarkable about the Haggadah is that there are just so many versions.
1: Yes, it it happens that I haven't been that adventurous in my own personal Haggadah use. So for all the years of my childhood and even into adulthood, I use the same Haggadah every year at our Seder. Some of you will know what I'm talking about when I say the one that is yellow and maroon. We use that that every year to the point that I know, you know, what is on which page of the Haggadah. And, you know, I know where the wine splotches are from, from Seder's past, but yeah, I know that there are a lot out there. I know there's, you know, Hogwarts Haggadah. And I mean, that's the one that always leaps to mind, but I know there's pretty much a Haggadah for everyone out there. Yeah.
0: There's an emoji Haggadah, of course. There's even a Trump Haggadah that someone put out there. Just many, many varieties of good old traditional Haggadah as well. And, you know, I can't think of another Jewish liturgical text that's so malleable and that we're allowed to shape and change. You know, there's nothing quite like that except for the Haggadah. So in this episode, we explore the history of the Haggadah, how and why it was created and how it's evolved over time. We hope you enjoy. Imagine that it's the year 50 of the Common Era and you're living in the Roman province of Judea in the land of Israel. It's the 14th day of the month of Nisan, the beginning of spring, and it's time to celebrate the festival of Passover or Pesach. But it's nothing like how we celebrate Pesach today. There's no searching for bits of leavened bread with a candle and feather, no gathering around the table with your family for the Seder, no matzah ball soup. Instead, you and your family select an unblemished firstborn lamb, gather some provisions, and alongside all the other families from your village, set out for the holy temple in Jerusalem. There, on the eve of the holiday, you hand over your lamb to a priest who leads it to a blood-soaked altar for sacrifice.
2: Then they would get the, the meat of the lamb, essentially, take it home and roast it in Jerusalem and have a feast that night.
0: This is Ruth Langer, a professor of theology at Boston College and the author of several books about Jewish liturgy. The feast, she says, consisted of roast lamb as the main dish.
2: Along with some matzah and a really nice condiment, which was some kind of bitter herbs. So if we think about that as, as eating a you know, mustard on a hamburger or something like that.
0: Several centuries earlier, according to the Second Book of Chronicles, Judean kings used the pilgrimage festival of Pesach as a way to demonstrate and consolidate their power. Rabbi Vanessa Oakes is a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and author of the recent book The Passover Haggadah, A Biography. She notes that Judean King Josiah, who ruled from 641 to 610 BCE, is described as having sponsored a lavish Pesach celebration.
3: He donates 30,000 lambs and goats and 3,000 cattle. The Levites are singing, they are roasting Passover sacrifices, and they are dispatching them to the people. This type of communal
0: experience, Oak says, embodied what the anthropologist Victor Turner would call communitas.
3: There is a sense of exuberance, connection to your people, connection to God. And when the temple is destroyed, the question becomes, how do you mark this day
0: That was indeed the central question concerning not only Pesach, but the entirety of Judean life and religion. Because in 70 CE, when Roman legions destroyed the temple in response to a Jewish rebellion, the Jews lost not only their central place of worship, but also their community and traditional way of life. It's easy to imagine the Jews of the time wondering if the ancient covenant between God and the people of Israel was broken.
3: When you're in exile and you're feeling great despair, how do you continue to rejoice and be grateful for a time when God once redeemed your people, but now you're no longer in a place of redemption?
0: And so the rabbis of the period faced the monumental task of reimagining Judaism as no longer centered on the temple and on offering sacrifices. Instead, Judaism became a civilization focused on studying and interpreting the laws of the Torah. In other words, Judaism became intensely text based. Through their study of the holy scriptures, the rabbis began to reconfigure how Jews would keep the commandments and celebrate the festivals, including Pesach. And it's here in the Tosefta and Mishnah that we see the very first glimmers of what would eventually become the Haggadah. Like the Mishnah, the Tosefta is a written compilation of Jewish oral law, and it includes a section on how to conduct what we might call a proto-Pesach Seder at home.
3: It begins with a blessing over wine, And then there is an hors d'oeuvre of dipped sweetbreads. Some psalms are recited at the table. There's
0: also to be matzah on the table, along with bitter lettuce dipped in charoset, a sweet paste made of fruits and nuts. And after the meal, there's to be a scholarly discussion of the laws of Pesach, which, according to Oakes, may not have proven to be the best arrangement.
3: Because you're discussing all the laws of Passover, you're studying only after all the eating and praying is done, which means you might not be terribly awake.
0: Which may be why the Pesach ritual described in the Mishnah seems to be the one that stuck and served as the model for seders going forward. As Langer notes, the Seder as described in the Mishnah was modeled after the Greco-Roman Symposium, which consisted of a meal connected to some kind of formal discourse and discussion. It's in the Mishnah's discussion of what should constitute the details of the Seder discourse that we begin to see elements familiar from the Haggadah. For example...
2: The Mishnah itself tells us that there's a very important interaction between children and parents. So they talk about fathers and sons that the son needs to ask the father questions as it came to be known through the Babylonian tradition four questions, which is one of the most familiar passages of the Haggadah.
0: As for the telling of the story of the Exodus from Egypt, the Mishnah focuses on a passage from the book of Dvarim or Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verses five through eight, which summarizes the history of Israel from the patriarchal period to entry into the promised land. It begins, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, and ends with God delivering Israel from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In more ancient times, this passage was recited on the holiday of Shavuot, which is several weeks after Pesach. So why did the rabbis of the Mishnah zero in on this passage for Pesach? Well, maybe it's because it gave people in exile hope that God would one day rescue them from their plight. It's worth noting that the Mishnah deliberately leaves out the following verses in Deuteronomy, which describe God delivering Israel to a land of milk and honey and the people offering the first fruits of the harvest as a sacrifice to God. In its truncated form, focused on Israel's deliverance from bondage, Langer says, it was a way to give a people in exile a brief, relevant, and easy-to-memorize text that could serve as a jumping-off point for discussion.
2: And you say, okay, take this text— and use this as the basis for telling the story. It's got the nuts and bolts there, and then you can expand on that. You can expound on it. You should be thinking about it, talking about it, letting it grow so that it's not just those five short verses, but a hour, two-hour, five-hour discussion, whatever it, you want to make it into.
0: The Mishnah also introduces the concept of the afikoman, although not initially as the piece of matzah eaten as the last bite of food after the meal.
2: It says, So it says, After you eat the Paschal lamb, and then we don't quite know what the other words mean. Afikomen sounds like it's a Greek word for revelry. So it's saying don't go out and party after you finish eating the Paschal lamb.
0: Several centuries later, the Gemara, the part of the Talmud that compiles rabbinic commentary and the Mishnah, relates the rabbinic decision that the last taste of food during the Seder should be matzah to replace the taste of meat in the mouth.
2: Not very effectively, but it does. That's its purpose. And so you can't move on and finish the Seder. You can't do the grace after meals and the rest of hallel without having had this last taste of matzah.
0: And that final palate-cleansing piece of matzah became the afikoman. Still, the Pesach ritual described in the Talmud doesn't say anything about a Haggadah. Beyond the focus on the passage from Deuteronomy, the rabbis of this period don't offer a written guide laying out the order of the ritual. It's only later, during the 9th and 10th centuries, that the earliest Haggadot begin to appear. They were discovered in the late 19th century by American Rabbi Solomon Schechter, who found fragments of 9th century Haggadot from Babylonia and from Palestine in the Geniza, or repository of the Ezra Synagogue in Cairo. These early Haggadot were not freestanding books, but rather parts of volumes, including liturgies for all Jewish festivals. One thing that's ironic about early Haggadot, Oak says, is that the rabbis of the period were at first reluctant to provide too much guidance and fix the Seder ritual in place.
3: But once texts got written down, then rabbis were very adamant that the way that they had written it down was the only way that it should be done. The
0: Babylonian and Palestinian factions argued heatedly about the details of the Seder recorded in their competing Haggadot.
2: There are debates between the rabbis of Babylonia and the rabbis of the land of Israel over when you do the different hand washings, do you use blessings, which blessings do you use. We only do a blessing over the second hand washing whereas there were people who did a different blessing over the first hand-washing.
0: The Babylonian Haggadah eventually became the standard. And even in its earliest versions, it's pretty close to the Haggadah we use today. For example, among the documents discovered by Solomon Schechter was a nearly complete manuscript of a Haggadah compiled by Sadia ben Yosef Gaon, Head of the surah academy or yeshiva in babylonia during the 10th century
2: so it starts with kiddush it starts with the blessing over the wine and he's got here havdalah if it's a saturday night the aramaic passage that follows that we think of as halach this is the bread of affliction
0: next appear the four questions albeit in a different order than we're used to And then the answer to the questions. And here we see for the first time the result of a Talmudic debate concerning the interpretation of the passage from Deuteronomy we discussed earlier. The rabbis of the Mishnah had declared that expounding on the passage had to begin with denigration and end with praise.
2: And the Talmud asks, what do they mean by denigration? And there's a debate between Rav and Shmuel. And I always get mixed up which one said which, but one of them says the denigration is that we were slaves in Egypt. And the other says, in the beginning, our ancestors were idolaters.
0: Like our Haggadot, Ovad-Yagon's version includes both interpretations. It begins to answer the four questions by stating, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt.
2: This goes directly from that into the four children which is an ancient piece, which is uh, found in uh, Midrash and is integrated into the Haggadah.
0: And from there delves into the other answer, that our ancestors were idol worshippers, which in turn leads into telling the story of Israel starting with the patriarchs and their idol-worshipping forebearers.
2: Then he has this passage that we always sing in our house, Blessed is he who, who kept his promise to Israel. Blessed is the Holy One, blessed be he.
0: The blessings are to praise God for keeping his promise to Abraham that after 400 years of Egyptian slavery, God would rescue them.
2: And this promise, which has stood for our ancestors and for us, is important because not only has this one pharaoh stood up against us to destroy us, but in every generation that they stand up against us to destroy us. And the Holy One, blessed be he, saves us from their hand. That's one of the most important lines of the Haggadah. And that's here already.
0: By the end of the 13th century, the main text of the Haggadah as we know it was nearly complete. At a time when owning books was becoming popular among the wealthy, the Haggadah finally emerged as a standalone text. But it wasn't only text. Some Haggadot also included elaborate illustrations.
3: The beautiful ones were commissioned by wealthy Jewish families and they were created by Hebrew scribes with fine hands who also knew how to draw.
0: In places where Jews were barred from artist guilds, rich Jewish families would commission Christian artists to fill their Haggadot with colorful images.
3: So one form of illustration is to show you the rituals of the Passover Seder and its preparation. You'll see people making matzah, you'll see people sitting around a table, families at their tables and families preparing. Svartic
0: Hagodot from the medieval period often included other illustrations.
3: And that would be images from other books of the Bible that might be illuminating, clarifying, but are not referenced in the Haggadah itself, say images of the seven days of creation, images of stories from Genesis.
0: The invention of the printing press during the 1440s sparked a flourishing of new Haggadot. It was a period when Jews began to want to know more than just how to conduct the Seder. They wanted to explore the deeper meanings of the ritual. The printing press allowed for the publishing of Haggadot with rabbinic commentaries on the text. For example, in the aftermath of the catastrophe of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, the Haggadah commentary of the 15th century Jewish-Portuguese scholar Isaac ben Judah Abarbanel was sharp and pointed.
3: His questions are profound and disturbing, he asked. What benefits have we in the diaspora today derived from the exodus from Egypt? Isn't it possible that we would have been better off in Egypt than in our contemporary exile and in a period of desolation? I think what we see in the printed Haggadah that we see nowadays is a sense that there are real existential questions that are part of the Haggadah, which which aren't answered within the Haggadah. We need our commentaries to help address our heartaches Now,
0: you may be wondering, what about all those songs we sing at the end of the Seder, like Chadgadya, the song about a goat? According to some sources, they began to appear in Haggadot during the 16th and 17th centuries. And according to Langer, they were basically popular folk songs.
2: They're of a type that we sing in English. There was an old woman who swallowed a fly... I don't know why she swallowed a fly. She followed a spider to catch the fly, and so on and so forth. Chet <laughs> Gad is the same thing.
0: Although it may be tempting to find deep meaning in these tunes, Langer has her doubts.
2: Some people try to read uh, theology into them, and they're really being about Jewish survival or something like that. But I don't think that most people are thinking about that. I think they're just enjoying and being a little bit slap-happy after four glasses of wine and a long night and enjoying themselves. (laughs) ¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶
0: Haggadot continued to evolve throughout the Renaissance, the Age of Enlightenment, and on into the modern age, adding new commentaries and illustrations to reflect changing times. In 1932, Maxwell House began publishing its famous Haggadah as a marketing strategy. It became the most popular Haggadah among American Jews and earned the brand loyalty of millions of American Jewish coffee drinkers. In 1946, the Third U.S. Army published what came to be known as the Survivors' Haggadah, which included the recent experiences of Holocaust survivors alongside the traditional text. In the 1950s, Israeli Jews published Zionist Haggadot, celebrating the founding of the modern state of Israel. And starting in the late 1960s, Haggadot with explicit political viewpoints began to emerge, promoting civil rights, feminism, vegetarianism, and many other movements and philosophies. Today, we're awash in so many versions of the Haggadah that it's difficult to know exactly how many there are. There's a Haggadah to suit every sensibility, whether you're a jubu, a social justice activist, or even a Harry Potter fan. And yet, at their heart, all of the various Haggadot do the same kind of work, guiding participants along the ritual of the Passover Seder.
3: What's most remarkable about it to me is that Between its covers, it holds the possibility for a Jew who might never have been to a Seder before or might not even know the story of Exodus very well. It holds the possibility for her to do a lot of cooking and shopping and invite a bunch of people over and say, we are about to observe an incredibly old Jewish ritual. That's really important. And this book allows her to facilitate that ritual.
0: For Langer, the ways in which the Haggadah tells the ancient story of the Exodus from Egypt while also inviting us to make the experience our own is a big part of what makes the Haggadah special and enduring.
2: So personalizing the Haggadah, personalizing the Seder discussion, contemporizing it, bringing it, the, the, the word that my Catholic colleagues use is actualizing it, taking this ancient story and making it be relevant to who we are today is always meant to be central to the experience.
0: Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. Jen Richler is associate producer. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community. So thanks for listening, and we hope you have a happy and healthy Pesach.